This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. You know, certain battles leave an indelible mark on history and the land that they occur on. Marathon, Thermopylae, Gaugamela, Tours, Hastings, Manzikert, Agincourt, Waterloo, Gettysburg, Stalingrad, Normandy, The Bulge, Okinawa. If you're even vaguely aware of history, you'll recognize those just by the names. Whole scenes will explode in your mind about the strategies, the movements, the brutality, the brotherhood, the weapons, the overall context. These battles are impressive and horrifying simultaneously. But there's one battle that I'd like to throw out on this episode as one of those we should probably remember. It's nothing in the grand scheme of things, but as always, context matters, and the outcome of this battle would cement the Norman conquest of Sicily. This, of course, is purely hindsight, but I contend that we remember those other battles for what proceeded after each one, not necessarily the battles themselves. So if I may, let me shed some light on a lesser-known battle that occurred in the mid-11th century and solidified the future developments of an entire island, its population, and its rich culture that endures to this day. This is episode 115, and it's entitled, The Battle of Cherami. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Five miles to the west of Troina was a small town named Cherami. Cherami was an idyllic spot, nestled up in the hills overlooking a peaceful river of the same name. And as historian John Julius Norwich writes in his book called The Other Conquest, quote, Rivers seemed to bring the Normans luck. On the mainland, the Olivento, the Ofanto, and above all, the Fortore, had run red with the blood of their enemies. And in Sicily, the Detaino had already witnessed a similar triumph, end quote. I don't know, maybe it was his ancestral Viking blood calling to him, but Roger would take full advantage of the rivers coursing through the mountainous island. Rivers just made sense. They allowed for quick travel, they served as buffers against a charging enemy, and they also acted as walls that forced an enemy to either turn and fight or try their luck and swim across. Roger knew of Cherami, and he knew the town had a river flowing nearby, and he was desperate not to allow himself to be pinned down so easily like he was just six months prior during the siege of Traina. He needed, as Norwich says, quote-unquote, a rallying point. And being hilly, there were more outlooks to choose from in the area than he needed. That's a good problem to have. After a rough winter, a spring that saw a rebuild and resupply, and a summer of conquest so far, Roger had learned that the Saracens had called in reinforcements from mainland North Africa. And these forces, though without question exaggerated in Malaterra's chronicles, still numbered in the thousands. Roger, between his own forces and the small band he'd placed under his nephew Serlo's command, the Norman force only amounted to maybe 600, and that might be stretching it. 
Either way, the Normans once again found themselves sorely outnumbered. And by the time Roger moved his forces to Chirami, the other army had set up on the other side of the Chirami River. Norwich tells us that three days went by and no one moved. Both sides merely stared across at each other, waiting on the other to blink first. But something odd was occurring across the river. From the Norman perspective, the Saracen forces kept moving around. Up a mountain, down a mountain, up a different mountain, then down again toward the flats near the river. It was all confusing. And the last thing you want to do to a bunch of warriors is make them nervous and uncomfortable. Malaterra writes, quote, Our men were in turn reluctant to allow the enemy to remain any longer so close to them without being attacked. They confessed to God with great devotion in the presence of the priests, received penance, and then, commending themselves to God's mercy and trusting his aid, marched out to attack the enemy. End quote. So, you know, Normans being Normans, they couldn't bear the idea that the enemy was within sight and they weren't slaughtering them en masse. And so they made their peace with God and began to advance. But the problem came with a messenger saying that in all that moving around over the last few days, the confusion, the Saracen army had actually attacked the town of Cherami. With the enemy busy and focused on raiding a town, Roger sent Serlo ahead with his 30 or so knights. The Battle of Chirami had begun. Serlo had direct orders to ride ahead and distract the enemy, while Roger's forces of a few hundred followed close by. Serlo was ordered to simply, you know, be a nuisance, as he did so well in previous missions. But Serlo, Serlo was a hopeful man. Like his uncles, from William Ironarm to Robert Giscard, and certainly like his beloved uncle Roger, He was a hothead, and he was a fierce warrior, and he was as brave as they came. Serlo was not the type of guy who was okay with waiting around if an opportunity to attack and conquer presented itself. Serlo entered Cherami itself and fought his way through the Saracen forces who, caught by complete surprise by the small group of Normans, fled the town. Malaterra describes the scene like this, quote, Serlo entered the camp, not waiting for his uncle's arrival within the walls, bursting through the gates like a raging lion and inflicting the great casualties on them. Even though they numbered 3,000, in addition to the infantry, of which there were an infinite number, wonderful to say, he put them to flight with his 36 knights. End quote. Initially, Serlo's insubordination was a big win for Roger's forces. So, as Roger approached, he saw Saracens fleeing in the distance and saw his nephew holding the town. I can't tell if Roger would have chuckled or actually been livid. Remember, he was a Hopeville as well. But either way, he quickly turned to what to do next. One of his fiercest mercenaries was a man we've mentioned, very very briefly, a Norman knight named Roussel de Bayol. Speaking with his commanding officers, such as this Roussel, Roger was leaning toward allowing the enemy to flee, assuming that Serlo's handful of knights were enough to scare them away by the thousands. Roussel was a different kind of guy, though. Malaterra tells us that Roussel, quote, replied fiercely that he would never again help him, him being Roger, either here or anywhere else unless Roger brought the enemy to battle, end quote. 
well, whether Roger appreciated the way he was spoken to or not, we don't know, but he knew the mind of a fighting man. That's one thing Roger was very good at. He knew Roussel was right, though. Again, though we never really know why Roussel de Bayol was exiled by Roger in the coming years, we can clearly see how he came to be in the service of Emperor Romanus IV at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. Roussel de Bayol was a warrior. He sought war. That's what men like Roussel do. And Roger knew he needed men like Roussel if he was to win in Sicily. So Roger ordered his hundreds of knights to suit up. They were riding to the enemy very, very soon. But it seems by the time they moved on to the enemy, they saw thousands of them. Many of the knights became frightened. You know, Normans were Normans. (laughs) Make no mistake about, you know, who these men really were. But numbers were numbers after all. If Normans were good at anything, it was that they were experts at only fighting battles they knew they could win. But here they were, numbering in the few hundred, standing across from a horizon of thousands. And here's where Malaterra shines. Malaterra writes the supposed speech. I want to stress supposed speech because, again, Malaterra is writing about three decades later. But Malaterra writes the supposed speech that Roger, spurred on by Roussel de Bayol, by the way, shouted to his men to refocus them and, you know, fire them up. He says, apparently, quote, Keep up your spirits, you brave Christian knights. We all carry the emblem of Christ, and he will not, unless he is wronged, desert this symbol. Our God, the God of gods, is all-powerful. The man who does not trust in him relies entirely on his human power and the strength of his arm. But all the kingdoms in the world are subject to our God, and he will deal with them as he wishes. These people are rebels against God, and whatever power which they have does not come from God and will speedily be exhausted. They rejoice in their own courage. We, however, are safe under God's protection. Nor is it right to have doubts, for it is certain that with God going before us, we shall be irresistible. Hence, Gideon defeated many thousands of enemies with only a few men, since he never doubted in God's help. End quote. So why did I share that whole, you know, <laughs> alleged riveting speech? Well, considering Malaterra, again, was writing a few decades after this, there's absolutely no way you can sell me on this being an actual speech given by Count Roger before the famous Battle of Chirami. Sorry, no. So again, why did I read that whole thing? Well, for starters, it's, it's just great storytelling. I mean, who doesn't love a riveting speech? Even American football movies have great speeches in them, basketball movies, all those. But second, I wanted to show you another solid example of the quote-unquote crusading spirit that seemed to balloon throughout the Mediterranean as the 11th century pushed on toward its end. Though Malaterra's words, again, written down in the 1090s, weren't a word-for-word retelling, the sentiments back in 1063 regarding the invocation of the Christian version of the Abrahamic God in divine opposition to the Islamic version of the Abrahamic God was pretty much the norm by that point. Whether you're in Sicily, Anatolia, or Iberia 
Christianity was slowly, you know, greasing its gears for what would become the first crusade. The first crusade, as I've said before, and I will continue to, to emphasize the first crusade did not occur in a vacuum. Pope Urban II didn't just dream it up. This had been burning slowly in the background for decades. So back to the battlefield. Roger had reorganized his army into two divisions. The first division would be led by Serlo, with Roussel de Bayol and a man named Erisgotus of Puchel serving as commanding officers under Serlo. Roger would remain in the rear leading the second division. From here, Roger ordered the army forward. Serlo's first objective was to take a nearby hill that was occupied by a group of African mercenaries. This served as their high ground and vantage point from which they could relay messages to the Saracen commander. As Serlo sent a charging force up the hill, hoping the speed of the cavalry would make for a quick acquisition of the hill and evacuation of the enemy, the enemy surprised everyone by immediately abandoning the hill itself, with not so much as a rock being thrown in the Normans' direction. These African mercenaries moved around the cavalry without their knowledge, and the next thing anyone knew, Roger's rear division was being flanked by them, taking casualties in the process. It was an absolute brilliant surprise maneuver on the African mercenaries' part. Though Roger's men made short work of this surprise attack, it must have been this moment when Roger realized that this battle would be a special one, unlike any others he's fought already. Roger pushed his division forward at that point, change of plans, right? And he drew in close to Serlo's division in front of him. There would be no rear division effectively from this point on. Roger knew it would have to be a full team effort against these formidable numbers. He reorganized the entire Norman force on the spot. This is, I mean, this happens in battles all the time, so I'm not, I'm not disillusioned here, but to do it under pressure, being attacked, and his subordinates kind of picking it up, it was just really brilliantly done. You know, in retrospect of a thousand years, by the way. So he reorganizes the entire Norman force on the spot, pushing Serlo and Roussel de Bayol off to the sides, while his division maintained the center point and opposite side of the line. By this time, the entire Saracen force was barreling toward them. Serlo pulled his men around the side of the Saracen army, but the Saracens didn't take the bait. In fact, they ignored Serlo's knights altogether, and they kept charging toward Roger's center until a thunderous crash exploded the battlefield. Both armies, like, they melted into each other, it seemed, as the thousand-strong Saracens smashed into the hundred-strong Norman line. It must have been this epic collision. Screams of anger and panic and terror hovered over the sun-drenched field. Ever the cheerleader, Malaterra describes Roger in this situation. He said, quote, Urging on his front line, the Count fought with Arcadius of Palermo, who, fully armored and clad in a magnificent mailed hauberk, was riding gallantly in front of his own troops to challenge our men. The Count charged furiously down upon him, overthrew him with his lance, and killed him, thereby terrifying the rest of his men." End quote. In addition to Roger's heroics and what Malaterra continued to describe, effectively creating a read-between-the-lines David-versus-Goliath moment, yeah, in addition to that, 
the battle seemed to go on forever. Norwich adds to this scene, quote, The Muslim army nearly succeeded, but somehow the Norman line held. Meanwhile, Serlo galloped to his uncle's aid. All day the battle continued until the mangled, trampled bodies lay thick over the field. End quote. Now, eventually, the Saracen leadership noticed that the Normans weren't going anywhere. It was as if they would rather die on that field than turn tail and retreat. And the longer they stayed engaged in battle with them, the more casualties they would accumulate. There was no question who was the superior fighting force. That day or any other, really, the Saracen leadership decided to pull out of the battle before the bloodbath became too extensive. And as their men fled, Roger and Serlo and Roussel, well, they all ordered a full charge to chase down as many fleeing enemies as they could and to slaughter every single one they could get their hands on. It was a brutal display of triumph, but it was effective in showing the true nature of the Frenchmen these Sicilians were trying to defeat. And to add insult to injury, Roger ordered his Normans to not just occupy the enemy camp and loot it, but you know, Well, I mean, let's just stay the night there, in their tents, eating their food, enjoying their victory. But Roger still wasn't quite finished. Reports that night told him of thousands of largely untrained mercenaries who had nowhere else to flee to, no homes to return to, as they were from North Africa. Not all of them, but the majority of them. Well, these men had fled to the nearby mountains and found shelter in the overhangs and crags there. As long as they were out there, there was a potential enemy army that could reestablish itself. Well, the next morning after the Battle of Chirami, the resounding victory he could have just walked away from, like some, you know, hero in an action movie. Well, the next morning, Roger ordered a full attack on this completely unorganized smattering of men who had retreated the day before. It was another bloodbath, to say the least. Anyone fortunate enough to survive the Norman massacre was sold in order to raise even more money on top of the spoils and vast riches they'd already accumulated. Roger ordered his men to stay one more night in the enemy's camp before moving down the next day toward the battlefield to clean clean up there. They stayed another night nearby, but, as Malaterra writes, and it's kind of gross, <laughs> quote, they were overcome by the smell of the decomposing bodies of their dead enemies, and recoiling from the stench, they returned to Troina. End quote. Once back in Troina, it was crystal clear who the predominant military force was on the island. With respect to Norwich's expertise, I feel like he maybe undersold the extent of the Norman hold on the island after Cherami. He says, quote, Norman mastery of the whole region between Troina and Messina was assured, end quote. Yes, of course, but I feel it extended beyond, just a little bit beyond the Val d'Amone, again, the Val d'Amone being the valley stretching between the two cities. The Normans were indisputably on their front feet now. And the Muslim power structure was on the retreat, not across the entire island, but certainly on the northeastern half of the island and spreading quickly. And with reports coming out of the camps of warriors, seeing the banner of St. George himself flying proudly in the middle of the horrific melee during the battle, well, 
Roger even sent Pope Alexander II in Rome a little gift of four camels and a detailed recount of the recent events, the camels being quite the attention-getter as they were paraded through the Roman streets toward the Pope's residence. Now, the Pope Alexander II wasn't having a great time of things lately, if we could just divert a bit. If you remember, Pope Nicholas II had died in July of 1061, about two years prior to this. But Nicholas, or excuse me, before Nicholas had died, he had pushed through some serious papal election reforms, not to mention the creation of the College of Cardinals, which would oversee it all. That is, Nicholas II effectively cut out the Holy Roman Emperor, or the German king if an emperor hadn't been named officially yet, in the process of choosing a new pope. The mastermind behind all of this is a man we'll talk in depth about soon enough, but you may recognize the name of Hildebrand, by this time having worked his way up to the rank of cardinal in Rome. So why was Alexander II having such a problem? I mean, he was already pope, right? Well, King Henry III of Germany had died, leaving his son Henry IV as his heir. But since he was still in his minority, we've talked about this briefly before, his mother Agnes had assumed the role of regent. She knew exactly what Hildebrand was playing at and opposed Alexander's election vehemently. It was the first major test of the College of Cardinals system we still witness today when a new pope is elected. Queen Regent Agnes had propped up a man they called Pope Honorius II. But history doesn't recognize Honorius II as anything but an antipope. But at that time, you can certainly understand the tension. Once again, two warring factions had put up their pope. Who were the people of Rome and the kingdoms around Europe supposed to follow? That was the big question. Well, if it's any indication who people ultimately followed, Duke William of Normandy received a papal banner from Alexander II in 1066, blessing his conquest over the island kingdom of England. I'm sure you remember that. Either way, when Roger sent four camels to Rome, I imagine Honorius II watching them, you know, walk toward him, and he's all happy about it, but when the beasts are led past him and up to Alexander's house, I don't know, I just kind of chuckle thinking about his shoulders you know, dropping and one of his supporters putting an arm around his shoulders and leading him inside for some tea or something. Seriously, though, the fact that the camels were sent directly to Alexander II was far more important in the grand scheme of things than history would probably like to admit. It seems a small gesture, but seeing it from 30,000 feet or, you know, a thousand years later, we can clearly see precisely who the powerful Normans in the South recognized as their supreme spiritual leader. Throwing their support behind Alexander quite literally was really throwing their public support toward Cardinal Hildebrand, a man who was so ahead of the game of papal politics that there's no way he didn't realize what those camels really represented. And if it wasn't clear enough already, this gesture was yet another public gesture that publicly pitted the likes of Giscard and his vassals in direct opposition to the German king. Keep that one in mind. That one will come back. Now, that said, though Alexander II was the clear choice of the Normans as Pope, both in the South and in the North, and therefore held much of the recognition across Europe because of it, 
that didn't mean that Honorius II wasn't clambering for a foothold. He, in fact, took for a short spell the famous island fortress inside Rome called Castel Sant'Angelo, as well as, if you can believe it, the Vatican itself. He controlled those things for a very short time. Hildebrand orchestrated these possessions back into Alexander's control, but it wasn't a given that Alexander II would win out in the end. As it was, Honorius II would hold his claim until the day he died, just one year before Alexander II would pass away. And Alexander would serve as Pope for a total of 12 years. I mean, you have to give it up for Honorius' stubbornness, that's for sure. He held on for most of those 12. Norwich tells us, quote, Throughout this period, Alexander needed all the support he could find. In return for his camels, and this is where it ties right back into the Battle of Cherami, in return for his camels, Alexander sent Roger a papal banner to go before him and inspire his army in its future campaigns. Don't underestimate the power of a papal banner. It's a full blessing. More significant still, Alexander II proclaimed absolution for all those who joined Robert and Roger in their holy task of delivering a Christian land from the domination of the heathen. Henceforth, not only in the hearts of the Normans, but in the eyes of Christendom, the conquest of Sicily was a crusade. End quote. Did you catch that? With Pope Alexander's blanket absolution to any Norman fighting and killing a Muslim for control of Sicily, along with his official blessing in the form of a papal banner that would be flown high everywhere Roger and, of course, Robert Guiscard led the army on the island, the Norman conquest of Sicily was, by definition, that would be cemented into history in a few short decades. The Norman conquest of Sicily was a crusade. In fact, it was far more legitimate of a crusade than what El Cid was doing over in Iberia at the time. At the same time, by the way, as Roger in Sicily, and over the ensuing couple decades. Roger de Hauteville, unlike El Cid, had possession of a papal banner. Could we consider the Norman conquest of Sicily the real First Crusade? Maybe. Maybe not. Either way, the crusading spirit was officially spreading across Christian Mediterranean lands. That was the significance, not just the overwhelming victory uh, with fewer men and massively large enemies, right? It's not just that why we should remember the Battle of Cherami. The Battle of Cherami marks the Pope stepping in directly and giving a papal banner and all but calling the Norman conquest of Sicily, a crusade. Again, does this unseat the first crusade as the first crusade? I don't know. I don't think those are weeds we need to really, you know, try to rewrite the names and history, but it's worth considering. So what does this all mean to Roger? Norwich gives us the following summation of the situation. He begins by pointing out the people who inhabited the lands Roger's conquered so far. Very clearly, Muslims were in charge across the entire island. But, the historian writes, quote, most of their advance had been through largely Christian territory where they had become more accustomed to deputations of welcome than to armed resistance. And they had throughout enjoyed the protection of Ibn al-Timna, who had been able to guarantee them against attacks from the south and southeast. 
while they advance toward the center. End quote. So not to take anything away from what Roger and his fellow knights were able to accomplish, what they'd already overcome, but that was their reality thus far. They'd, they'd conquer largely Christian territory with the protection of a local emir who wielded a fair deal of power himself. But Roger's reality was shifting quickly, despite his victories recently. Norwich continues, quote, By contrast, the unconquered land that lay before them was Muslim through and through. Ibn al-Timna was dead. His enemy, Ibn al-Hawas, despite heavy losses, was still holding out at Enna, and the Saracens were now more than united than they'd ever been for a century. End quote. So what can we conclude about Roger's conquest thus far, then? Well, it'd be absolutely unfair to say he and his men, and Judith for that matter, have had an easy go of it. But I think perspective is needed before we continue. My thoughts boil down to, I guess, this statement so far, as of 1063. If Roger has had to fight this hard in largely friendly territory, and yes, I say that with some caution, with Muslim protection over him for most of that time. What is the rest of the conquest going to look like if he's no longer in relatively friendly territory and his protection had been eliminated? That's kind of where I stand right now. As Norwich says, Roger now has longer and longer supply lines to maintain and protect as he stretches further and further west and south. That's not nothing. Besides, let's, let's say Roger is successful. Let's say he rids the island of all Muslim power structures and brings Christian rule once again to the island. Let's say that happens. Norwich adds this haunting assessment. Quote, With their present numbers, they might conquer, but they could never control. End quote. How indeed? I mean, we know Roger succeeds. We know this. But in the moment? Well, Norwich adds this in the very next sentence, quote, When the exhilaration of Cherami had passed, these must have been the gloomy reflections that occupied Roger's mind and led him, among other considerations, to reject outright the next opportunity, which was put in his way. It came suddenly and unexpectedly from Pisa, end quote. Pisa? Like, like the Italian city north of Rome, Pisa? The city that would, in about 110 years from this point, become the spot of one of the world's most recognizable landmarks, that the Leaning Tower of Pisa? That Pisa? Yeah, that Pisa. And on the next episode, we're going to begin with the proposition offered by the Pisans directly to Roger de Hotel. And I can't wait to tell you about it. 